Uh, amen to that. If you have a Bible, Exodus 32 is where we'll be. It's uh, our main text today, and then we'll back up to Exodus 20 shortly. Again, my name is Derek. If you're just joining us, um, this, is, this is church. Welcome. Good to see you. Um, I think that, like I was, you know, as a, as a preacher, you stand up here and, or sit up here as it, as it is today, but, um, and you hear yourself say the things that you've written down, and um, I like today. I mean, I, I normally don't even like anything that I say. Uh, I usually go home and look at my wife and say, anything, anything good in there? And um, she says, eh, a little, there's a little bit in there. But, uh, but today, I really like where it goes, and it kind of ends up being, you'll get it sort of at the end, or maybe you're like really good at picking up on things, and you'll pick it up in the middle somewhere. But uh, So just, I'm going to ask you ahead of time just to kind of stay with me, and uh, it's going somewhere, all right? Um, so, are we there, Exodus 32? Yeah, okay, that was good. I'm just trying to help you out, you know, I don't want you to be like, wait, I'm lost. Gave you a chance. So, um, so I have this thing here, you know what this is? It's a walker, yes, thank you. Uh, this is, uh, this was not hard to come up with, by the way, I mean, it, it was just sort of like immediate when I said, okay, this is the, this is the deal for this, this, you know, this particular Sunday, that was the first thing that uh, was written down uh, on the, the preliminary notes, and so I'm making phone calls and emails, I got to find one of these, because I don't, I don't own one, and um, I'm sure one day I will, but I don't have one now. Um, so we borrowed this, and we stuck it on the stage. I don't know, maybe you were during worship going, somebody left their walker on the stage. What were they doing on the stage, by the way? Uh, so, but it's something that I want us to kind of keep in front of us as we talk through, uh, as we talk through our text today and just sort of life situations. But this is a perfect picture, or one of the many pictures that are just perfect for how we, uh, you and I, how we see and understand uh, God. Basically that He's old and slow, right? Like sometimes you feel like you are behind Him reaching around and going, okay, let's just go this way just a little bit, okay? Or you're beside Him sort of helping, you know, okay, no, no, we got to go this way, we got to do this. Or sometimes it's just you're pulling Him uh, in different directions like, okay, I'm tired of waiting on you and so... This is where I need you to be. Does this make sense? This is how often we often see and understand who He's holy, He's powerful, He's almighty, He's awesome, He made stuff, He made the universe. Yes, we got that. But at the end of the day, most of the time we can run through these long stretches in life where it feels like He's not moving. And I'm always like, I've known people, and they come up to me, and they're like, or we'll be in conversations, and you get the feeling that they, you know, hey, when I pray, stuff happens, right? And I begin to feel, and maybe you feel this way, I begin to feel like, well, something must be wrong with me, because that doesn't always happen. Sometimes I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and it's like God is just sleeping on the walker. He's not moving. He's not doing anything. He's not listening, Right? And the thing is, we can go through these long stretches where we're just waiting, just sitting, being still. And the thing about waiting is the longer you wait on anyone, but God 
as well, the more you start to feel like you have been forgotten. Does that make sense? I mean, the longer you're waiting, the longer you feel like, or the more you feel like you've been forgotten. And if you feel like you've been forgotten by God, then there isn't a lot left at that point, right? I shared with you in the news that we hired somebody, but what you don't know, or maybe you do know, but it took a long time. Uh, There were some 30 resumes, and then we hired a guy, and then he didn't want to come, which was tough because I had already emailed 29 people and said, sorry you didn't make the cut. Can't go back to them. You know, like, hey, I was just kidding, just seeing if you were really committed to us. Um, So then we started over, and then the resumes were piling up, and um, there's about maybe 20 that are still in a file on my computer that I need to delete, but at the same time, I'm a little leery, like, to even talk to them, like, maybe she won't come. (laughs) You know, this has been our reality for the last year, but it, it has been a long process of just, no one wants to come here, which leads me to start asking like really desperate questions like, what's wrong with me? Or what's wrong with us? Like, I'm, I love CCB. It's like I brag about us, but it was in those moments where I was starting to like wonder if something was wrong with us. Because we, we were on our knees, we were praying, we were doing everything that we needed to do. We handled everything very professionally. And it's like he was just deaf over there. And I would start saying, well, what, what's wrong with us? And I would become very aware of our own flaws. And this is where you need to catch what happens when we all of a sudden start to feel that this is not going to produce anything. I started to look around and wonder, well, maybe it's something about us, right? So I became very aware of the fact that the chairs that you sit on, they're borrowed. We don't own these. Some church gave them to us, right? That's why they have rips in them, and we try to hide those, but whatever, you know? Or I'm, I was very aware that we have gaff tape running up and down the middle of the aisle to cover these things that put power on the stage, right? I'm very aware that there are leaks. You see the water stains coming down the thing? Maybe you don't see those anymore, but when I started getting rejection, you know, rejections from people, I'm like, maybe it was the water stain. I don't know. You just start rigging, and you're just trying to figure out, like, what is it? It must not, he's not going to do anything, so it must be something that we need to do. Maybe we need to beef up the whatever, you know? And one of the, one of the things that churches do when they're in the midst of struggle, and most churches in America are in decline, that's not anything new, 3,000 of them close every year in our own country. Uh, and most, most of the time what happens, and I've been in on these discussions with pastors, they feel very scared because uh, things aren't happening and they aren't, you know, maybe they're declining in number or just in morale, which is worse. They, their knee-jerk reaction is, um, we got to go louder, faster, harder, so we'll just beef up the music or maybe I'll dress down or sit down or maybe we'll just try to be cool, we'll put some young people on the stage or whatever, and the saddest situation to watch as a pastor is to watch a church do all those things and still die. And they just start, you know, the pastors and the the leaders and the people would just start to think that, well, if he's not going to help us, 
then it must be something that we can do, like more stuff on the calendar or more of this kind of music or more of this or that. Like we just start thinking if we just put these things in place, then that's all it takes because he's not moving. Now, does this make sense so far? Maybe, maybe not. When we are sitting there and praying and hoping that God will provide and it doesn't feel like anything's happening, then we get impatience. But in the Scriptures, and I want you to notice a few passages on the screen, waiting is a very good thing. In Isaiah 30, 18, it says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show compassion. And compassion, by the way, is an act of patience. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who what? Wait. Blessed are those who wait for Him. Next slide, Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. So it's redundant. Be still, which in the Hebrew means relax before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And this is when we get impatient. Do not fret when other people are doing well. Right? So humanity has not changed. This is thousands of years ago, but when people start doing well and you're not, you grow impatient. You can't relax. Next slide. Perhaps the most famous, you may know this, be still and know that I am God. That comes from Psalm 46, and the entire psalm is chaos. It's mountains falling into the sea. It's all this chaos. It's nations in uproar. It's etc. It's all those things. And then in verse 10, God speaks. The only time he speaks in the psalm, and he says, be still, or the phrase rafa, which literally means just relax and know that I'm God. I know I'm over here, but just relax, right? So this, in the Scriptures, and this is just three of many, waiting, waiting is a good thing. Waiting is essentially hope and faith and trust in God. It's not getting ahead of Him or behind Him and pushing, but it's doing our days in a patient rhythm with Him. But the truth is, stillness and quiet and distance and silence, that can really be, that can be a problem for us. And that's kind of a setting, uh, the setting of our story today. Look at Exodus 32, uh, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. So there's your setting. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. They gathered around Aaron, who is Moses' older brother, and they said to him, come, Make us gods. Strange phrase, by the way. <laughs> Would you make a god, please? Make us gods who will go before us. Go before us is a very common phrase to mean lead, that you'll lead us, that, that these gods will lead us. Sometimes when we pray for things here, we ask God to go before us, to make a way for us. So they come to Aaron and they say, hey, come make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, right? who brought us out of Egypt, we, we don't know what has happened to him. So he's gone. And I think right there in verse 1, we have maybe the whole lesson. But when the people saw that Moses, it says, was so long in coming down off the mountain, they kind of went into a panic. Now, these people, the nation of Israel, at this point in the story, in their story, they are just a few months from slavery. They had been freed from Egypt, out of slavery and into freedom, but it's only been weeks, really. It's only been a, a, you know, a, a few months at best. 
So everything for them was brand new. Everything for them was uh, completely a new thing, especially their freedom, because Egypt was their story. Egypt was their history, their understanding of life spiritually and socially. It's kind of like all they knew. I mean, God brought them out of slavery. That whole thing with God was a new relationship for them. And up to this point, they had been living on the run, and they were still sort of tied emotionally and even uh, religiously back to their days in Egypt. And so when we pick up the story here, Moses had been gone for quite a while. The, the story actually begins in Exodus 24. I'll put the main passage up there for you. It says, Then Moses set out with Joshua. You may have heard that name. Uh, Joshua, his aide. And Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here. So there's the command to wait here for us until we come back to you. There's the promise of a return. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So there it is. Moses says, this is the substitute teacher, right? So you got problems, deal with him. Uh, you can come to him. I'll be gone. I'll be with God on the mountain of God. I'll be back, right? So that's the setting. But the thing about it is this was perhaps the first time that Moses had been away from these people. His presence, his leadership uh, in their daily lives was as a daily thing. If you will, I don't have it on the screen, but turn back to Exodus 18, and you'll get a picture of this uh, from this chapter. In verse 13, uh, this is a small glimpse into what Moses was doing every day. It says, the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. So all day, Moses would sit in his place, and then the people would just surround him. One after another, they would come and surround him. And it says in verse 14, when his father-in-law, whose name is Jethro, by the way, I just think that's the greatest Old Testament name, uh, his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people. So even the father-in-law, who's really just come for a visit at this point in the story, goes to work. It's like bring your father-in-law to work day. And so Moses is sitting uh, at his place, and all of these people are coming to him from morning till evening, and his father-in-law looks, and his assessment is that he's doing a lot for these people. He's doing a ton for these people. And in verse 14, when his father-in-law saw that, all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, he asked, what, what, what is this you're doing? What are you doing? Why do you alone sit as judge? Why all these people stand around you from morning till evening? There's a codependency. Why are you doing this? Why are they so deeply dependent on you? Well, Moses has an answer, and it's always spiritual, isn't it, when we don't want to get out of something? Because the people come to me to seek God's will. That's what I'm here for. I can't say no. Verse 16, whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I, I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. So he has this answer like, this is what I do. This is what, welcome to my world. They just come to me all day long, and I deal with it. Now, the story goes on where Jethro <laughs> encourages Moses to raise up people from his own nation to handle smaller disputes, and he becomes someone who only handles the major ones. But the main reason I wanted you to see that passage is so that you can see that Israel had this deep dependence on Moses. And in some ways, they had made Moses... And I think because he's the one that led them out of slavery. And so they kind of made Moses everything, right? Like he was our 
savior, so to speak, from slavery into freedom. And so we have this kind of situation where the people have taken Moses and they have made him, he's everything to them. He's everything to them. But the thing about it in our story back in chapter 32, no one knew where he was. I mean, they knew where he was, but he wasn't coming back. And I know this is real hard for us, but like Moses didn't have a Twitter account or a Facebook status update situation. He was off the grid. Everybody was off the grid. And so as far as they're concerned, he's gone, right? There's no message getting back to us. And it's been 40 days. So he's been gone some five, six weeks, and he left his older brother in the nation waiting. Look at verse uh, Look at verse 1 again. So they gather around Aaron. The setting is their, their impatience has caused panic. And so they gather around Aaron, and they say, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, it's very easy. This is a very easy lesson at this point. This is very simple. They just want a leader. And God had been their leader all through Exodus up to this point, you can watch God providing and leading. The most famous would be the cloud by day and the fire by night in Exodus 13. I mean, this is very, very common stuff in the book of Exodus in this story. So it's not that they hadn't been led by God. It's not that God had not gone before them in the past. But in their minds, like all of that has stopped. Like he doesn't hear us anymore. He can't see us anymore. Maybe he's lost. We don't know where he is. And his, and his servant, his leader Moses, has not returned. And so we don't know when he's coming back. And their very words are, we don't know what has happened to him. So there's this assumption that something has gone down, and they're without, they're without this leader. And so the no-show of Moses caused this panic, and they did really what we all do when there's a panic. We just sort of step back into what we know, right? We just, it's a default. We just sort of back up into what we know. And they came from, again, generations of people living and dying in Egypt. And so what they knew of faith and what they knew of the gods was there were a lot of gods. There were a lot of gods to worship. And many of them had idols, and many of them had physical figures that you would bow down to and worship. And so this is exactly what they do. They go to Aaron and they say, you know what we've forgotten to do is build an idol. And so they go to him and they say, let's do it. Look at verse, uh, oh wait, I don't want to miss this. There is a silver lining in this. It seems like it's sort of like, uh, oh, the Israelites. But there is a silver lining. The silver lining is this, that, that, that their pursuits and their interests are divine. They're not human. They want something beyond a person. They do want something divine. They do want something beyond this life. That's their pursuit. That's their interest here. So it's a small silver lining. And the Scriptures, one of my favorite stories is in Acts 17 where Paul goes to Athens. And if you knew much about ancient Athens, it's uh, full of idols. In fact, uh, chapter 17 in Acts, just like the, one of the first things it says Paul did was he walked around the city and he was just astonished at all the statues and of all the, and of all the gods and all the things that they worshipped. And he finally gets a meeting with uh, the Areopagus, and he says this to begin his speech. He says, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very what? Religious. He didn't start by saying, look, you're totally off base. Really, I mean, I can knock the statue over. What are you going to do? 
But he says, it's very obvious that your pursuits are divine. You want to make sure that the gods are happy. So he begins there. It's kind of what's happening with Israel here, is that their pursuits, their interests, they're divine, they're not human, they weren't putting any undue trust into a person, but they were seeking something beyond themselves. Look at verse 2. Finally, verse 2, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So in verse 2, Aaron just does an on-the-quick, opens up a we-buy-gold shop, right? Have you noticed the one that's on our property? Like this building actually has two buildings. There's a smaller one on the corner, which we've wanted that building forever. We kept asking for it. We could put stuff over there whatever. And they're like, no, we got like a thing going in there, and it's a we buy gold shop. So now people think that we buy gold. So it's very, <laughs> are you the church with the gold shop? Mm-hmm. We make golden calves right here on campus. <laughs> so <laughs> you can melt down your, your glam and put it in the offering plate, all right? So Aaron does this. He says, okay, well, go get all the earrings and the rings from your wives and sons and daughters. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this, but one of them is Aaron might be trying to put too many hurdles in front of them. Because if you think about it, give up your valuable stuff, and you've got the husbands going to the family saying, this is what we need to do. So, baby, I know I got you that for our whatever anniversary, but I need that because we're going to melt it down. And so in some way, Aaron is putting up a lot of roadblocks here. But the people, by the way, uh, think it's a brilliant idea. If you look at verse 3, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. So there's a real sense of desperation here. So they do it. It's like they've gone crazy. And he took what they handed him and he made it into an idol, cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Right? Now, this is one of the first major lessons in the text, and it's simply this, and it has to do with the earrings and the gold melted down and turned into an object of worship. And the first major lesson is simply uh, about how, it's about how anything can become an idol. Anything can become, it's how anything good can somehow become supreme and there's a lot of good things. Gold is a good thing. Stuff, it's good things. But they can, if we are not careful, become supreme things. Anything can become an idol. And they said, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, which has always troubled me because they had to make the gods, and that's after they've been brought out of Egypt, but whatever. They're just so convinced that they were missing something, and so they had to create and make this cow, this calf, this golden idol. And then they make this declaration that this is who led us out of Egypt. Now, the whole experience with Israel, it began with them wondering if Moses was going to return and ultimately wondering if God had left the scene, right? Wondering if their leader was ever going to come back. And the space between Moses' uh, Moses's leaving and his returning 
was growing wider and less hopeful by the day. So again, panic just settled into the community. And that panic, as I've already mentioned, did to them, it just reversed their story. And it sent them back into what was familiar and what they knew of life and how life worked. They made gods. They built an idol. It's what they knew. And um, it's interesting. I didn't mention this last service, but the first time in Israel's like sequential history in the Scriptures that idol worship is not mentioned is in the book of Ezra, which is some thousand years after this story. And so it leads us to believe and understand that it took that long for Israel to figure out there's but one God, and He's not in the shape of a thing that we make, but He is overall and above a thousand years of just moving away from our story, our past, and into this new thing. Sort of depressing because maybe you have a rough past. You may never, never erase it. But there's this pursuit of just trying to honor God and do the things that He asks us to do, and it can be, it can be very tough, very, very tough. But the, the lesson today is this. I'll just put it on the screen for you. Idolatry happens when we're done waiting on God. That's your lunch conversation. When there's this sense that God is not coming back, or He's not going to pull through, or He's not going to deliver, He's not going to give an answer, He's not going to provide, we start looking around, and we start assessing who or what can fill that space. Again, back to ministry. Must be the music. Must be the chairs. Must be the screen. It must be the building. It must be this. If, if God's not answering, it must mean that everything's okay, but it's really our fault that things aren't happening. Maybe it is. But that's what we naturally do. We just say, well, if He's not going to move, He's clearly not moving, we'll look around. We'll find something else to fill the space. Something else or someone who can lead the way or who can bring some kind of result. And again, the normal route that we take is that we grab good things. They're all good things. And we exchange them and we make them supreme things. Things that can, they might be good things that can do great good in our world and we turn them into these supreme things. It's ultimately about me replacing God with something else, like a God alternative or a counterfeit God. Right? Turn to Exodus 20, just back a couple pages. And this is the main text for our month. We've gotten to it at the end of the, of the sermon. You like to hear that phrase, don't you? The end of the sermon. You made it this far. It's good. Um, I've been told to retell a funny story that I've told before. It might be new for some of you, so hang on. It, we, we rise here in a moment. But, um, but God says these words to Israel. It's the second of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words uh, to Israel. You shall make, not make for yourself an idol in the form of, what's the word? Anything. Anything can be an anything. In heaven above and on earth below, or the waters below. In heaven, on earth, or in the water below. Don't make an idol out of anything in those realms or even that look like something in those realms. Now, the flow of this command is beautiful. It's, uh, 
I mean, there's definitely a line in the sand about idols, like don't make them. That's the line in the sand. It's right there. But then the language is colorful after that. It just sounds poetic. Don't make anything uh, an idol of anything in heaven above and earth beneath or the waters uh, below. This was the traditional Hebrew understanding of the universe, that it's three-tiered, that there's this, there's this heavenly peace, this earthly peace, and there's the water beneath, it follows the creation story. If you read the creation story, all things are created in that order. God begins with the heavens and then the things on earth and then in the waters in the deep. It's the sky, earth, water thing. But basically what God is saying here is this is about anything that has been created. When the words heaven, earth, and waters are mentioned, this is about creation. And so anything that has ever been created, it's about that. It's about how anything in creation can become a counterfeit for him. Paul begins his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, maybe one of the more difficult chapters in the New Testament. But he says this in the first part of that letter about how people exchange the worship of the Creator for the creation itself. And we're not talking about tree huggers and things like that, although it may come into play. But we're just talking about how lesser things become greater things, or they become the greatest thing for people. And so this is about how anything and all of creation can become a counterfeit for the real deal, which opens up all sorts of possibilities about what an idol is. That's our, you know, our understanding of the idol, I'll just tell you the story now, is very sort of narrow. Uh, it's, it's all these people bowing down to a thing, Right? Uh, you notice there's no painting up here. Someone said, is that because we don't want to make an idol in, in the image? <laughs> Actually, no. They were on the floor ready to go, and the artist's sister went into labor. I mean, come on. And uh, they had to leave and go upstate. And so uh, she called. She was trying to work it out. She was like, um, I can come back. And I was like, no, it's totally okay. I'll do it. I'll paint it. She was like, because I got no skills with the brush or anything like that. I was like, I'll just paint some golden monkeys and statues and stuff. It'll be great. Uh, but no, we just put them back there. She'll do them this week, and they'll be back up on the wall uh, next week. But um, our, our common perception of an idol is this thing that a mass number of people are bowing, bowing down to. Or maybe our modern-day understanding is the American idol, right? Which, they're not really the idol. It's the thing they won that's the idol, right? Because once they're not famous, they're just that guy who was on American Idol. And um, so anyway, that's kind of our basic understanding. Here's the story that I've told before. If you're new, it's brand new for you. But uh, my son's eight. Last year, he was seven. That's how it works. And he was downstairs in uh, Sunday school with the kids, and he was learning about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the three Hebrew kids that would not bow down to the idol in the Old Testament. Just a fantastic story. Well, my son, like, he does a lot of things wrong, but he doesn't like to get in trouble. So, like, he's, he understands every single rule, but he somehow still breaks them. I mean, he's like a rule. He comes home and tells us who's breaking rules in his class, and yet, I don't know, it's weird. Uh, so, he learns about this idol worship and how they didn't do it, and that's the way you're supposed to go, and you shouldn't do this or that. And I'm thinking, if I was seven or eight, I would be thinking, well, that's never going to happen to me, right? Because no, those things just don't happen. So, he's at soccer camp last summer. And there are a couple of coaches and like 65 kids on this field. And the coach says, all right, here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to be your king, and you're going to be my subjects, and you're going to bow down to me, right? So on the count of three, we're all going to bow down. 
And so there's 65 kids there, and at the count of three, 64 of them hit the ground, and my son is just standing there like this. Like, this is really happening. Like, I just, <laughs> I just learned about this in Sunday school. All of you people are in big trouble, right? <laughs> Pointing at the coach, and you, you know. <laughs> I'll take the den of lions, you know, or the fire. So I guess it still happens a little bit, but the possibilities of what idols are are far beyond something so silly as that. And yet we say it's silly that anybody would talk to a thing or pray to a thing, but people talk to slot machines all the time. They really do. They just end their lives thinking that if they just keep feeding this God, that it'll finally deliver. Or if you just keep playing the game financially, that finally something will pay off, right? The superstition on Wall Street is very high. It's very high. Idol worship, that's silly. Really? When we start feeling the numbers, it becomes something different. The possibilities open. They're wide open. The obvious ones are money and possessions and sex and stuff like that. But there are quieter but equally effective idols beneath the surface. Stuff that promise guidance, protection, security, and fulfillment. And they're probably all good things. Money is a good thing. It produces, it supplies people's needs. It helps you live day to day, but it can become a supreme thing. Let me read to you from, we put it on the bulletin, by the way, as a suggested read. It's uh, Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. It's all based on this one verse, which actually I was reading this last year. And it was the inspiration for this whole year. I was like, we should do a series on this. And then it was like, we should do a series on all ten. But this is what he says um, in here. I want to read a couple of passages for you. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas, and gyms, and studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made, that's key, in order to procure blessings of the good life or ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, and money, and achievement, but the same things that have assumed mythical proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive, an obsession over their bodies. We may not burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. It's a powerful book. That's the introduction. And then he says the most famous moral code in the world is the Ten, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The very first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This leads to the natural question, what do you mean other gods? And the answer comes immediately. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, which means give them worth, right? This includes everything in the world, he says. Most people you know can make a God. Most people know that you can make a God out of money. Most people know that you can make a God out of sex. However, anything in life can serve as an idol, a God alternative, or a counterfeit God. 
And so I welcome you, uh, in conclusion, I welcome you to our second series of the year entitled Two, about the second commandment. We've given it the subtitle, The Counterfeit Series. And it's a series of sermons and discussions on this very difficult and profound command of God. And what I don't want to happen is we dismiss it as that's stuff that doesn't apply to me. Because beneath the surface of all of our lives, there are, there are these potential things that can become supreme, that can take the place of God, they can exchange Him. And over the next four Sundays, we'll look at various things. A couple of them will be obvious. Some will be a surprise. Uh, we'll look at various things that can become, that have the potential to become idols in our lives, right? And again, remember, anything, anything can be an idol. And so this series, although it sounds like a downer, is really it's a call to hope and trust and faith in God and God alone. And we're going to talk uh, pointedly about these are some ways to recognize that maybe you're heading down this path and how to fix that, how to correct that, how to be careful of that. And I think it begins with learning that waiting and patience and not hearing anything is okay. It's totally okay. Turn to Romans 8 and we'll close with this passage. Uh, as you're turning to this, the setting, uh, the setting that this text comes from or sits in is, this, is a setting of tension. There's a lot of tension. It has to do with the way things are in the world, and there's this real sense in chapter 8 of, you know, Paul sort of voicing that he wishes that God would just sort of fix, the, just fix it all. And I'm sure that we've thought that too. Like, I don't know how many times I've said in the midst of life, like, Jesus just needs to come back now. It would be a lot better. We'd all be better off. And so that's kind of the thing going on here. But Paul says in verse 18, he says, I consider, so he's come to this resolution, you know, and through inspiration of God, he begins to speak, and he says, I consider that our present suffering, so whatever that is, you fill in the blank, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so there's a lot of heavy language in here, but Paul is saying, look, I've just, I've just come to this conclusion with the help of God that everything that's going on in my life and on in my world that is, is a struggle it's not compared to the good of who God is. Verse 19, the creation, that's everything, waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. So he makes this statement that even all things created, they, they know, these things that have been created by God, they, they know that things aren't right. He amplifies it in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. And that's true, isn't it? My son has a fascination with tornadoes and any type of weather that might take his life. But it's just, creation is, it's beautiful, but it's frustrated. It's not perfect. And then in verse 21, right before that, it says, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into a glorious freedom of the children of God. So this redoing of the way things are, that's coming, that God will fix all things and put everything back to rights. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been, what's the word? Groaning. Like, ah, you know, it's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, this phrase that we're the first Christians in history. We got to be with Jesus we groan inwardly as we wait 
eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, like even in the midst of like Jesus is fresh off the scene. The first Christians, the first gen believers are just eagerly waiting, they're groaning. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. What, uh, who hopes for what he already has, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait. We wait for it, it says. We wait for it patiently. And I've said this a, a couple of times in here. Uh, the context may be tough to, to put the pieces together, but sometimes uh, the success of your faith is just, is just faith. That's it. Sometimes there's other things. Sometimes if you're faithful, they're like these un- unforeseen blessings. But sometimes there's no result other than faith. So like sometimes it's just like you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and nothing. He's not moving. Well, you just became a better prayer. That, that's it. No results. Or maybe you're reading through the Scriptures. You're like, I'm committed. I'm going to read through the Scriptures. And it's produced more questions than answers. And so now you're just struggling with your faith and information of the Scriptures and so on. And that's a good thing, by the way. It drives us deeper in to learn. But in your mind, there's no result for that. I mean, I worked hard, God. I was up at 5 in the morning reading your Bible. Maybe that's half the problem. You can't comprehend it at 5 in the morning. But I'm up early, and I'm reading, and I'm trying to get this thing. But I'm just, I'm lost. I feel more confused than, than ever. Or... I've been serving this person. I've been giving to this person. I've just been pouring my life out for this person, and they just keep on turning away from me. They keep on turning their back on me. They keep on doing all these things that you think that they would not do. So sometimes, many times, faith is just in and of itself the only result of faith, that you just trust God, even if He doesn't move. And I'm just going to tell you as a pastor, sometimes he just, he just won't move. He just won't do it. There's just no answer coming. There's no provision coming in certain situations. There's no clear path. And many times he will. But even if he doesn't, you just wait. Because as Paul said, it's not worth comparing to the glory of who's not moving. It's not worth it. And so in the Hebrew, rafa, just relax. Because if you don't relax, you'll start looking for something that can fill the struggle that you're in. You'll start looking for something, and it could be a good thing, and it'll become a supreme thing, and then it's just, here we go. We're not on the soccer field bowing down to a coach, but we're getting there. So I just want to leave you with that um, as we walk into, this, walk into this series. I'm really excited about it. This is the most nervous I've been about the whole year. This is the one I didn't really want to do it, but here we are. And i um, very excited about some of the things that we'll, we'll look through together as a church. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into uh, communion. If you are new with us, we celebrate this, uh, the bread and the juice, every week. It's a symbol of... Christ's body, His blood, and um, so when I finish praying at your own pace, you can make your way to one of the four tables. Take your time, there's no rush. Um, The offering baskets are also on the table, and if you have prayer concerns that you've written down or anything that you've filled out, you can just drop them in there as well. Let's pray together. Father, 
Thank you for um, this day and thank you for the times that have been very clear that you've provided. Thank you for um, just the just the freedom of coming together like this every week and singing and teaching and without fear of um, anything else. I mean, just we're here and we're just so grateful. Father, we thank you for uh, your patience with us as we veer left and right and we're off off course. You're just always there. You're you're immovable in your grace and mercy and Anytime we come back to you, you're just open-armed, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you for uh, those times, although it's hard to pray in these, in these ways, but we thank you for the times where uh, it feels like that you're gone, that we don't know where you are, because those are valleys. Those are times of darkness. As David wrote, the, the valley of the shadow of death, like we don't know where we're going. But the scriptures are clear that you're with us, even in those times. And uh, Father, you know what's best. You know what's going on more than we do. And so we just thank you uh, and ask you uh, to strengthen us in those times of darkness, of doubt, and keep us strong that we don't just start looking to little things here and there or people that can fill your role. Because we know that just doesn't, it doesn't work. So keep us courageous in this life as we, in, as we leave this building this week that, uh, that you will go before us and that we will look to you uh, for guidance, for encouragement and help. And Father, we, uh, again, we thank you for your son, Jesus, uh, who is the reason for our gathering and singing and, and everything we do in here today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.